Welcome again to church. It is so um, good to see you here, even with the snow outside, the unexpected snow outside. Um, we hope this morning that this service is not just an encouragement to you, but an understanding of a direction for the hope that we all have in Jesus together. Um, this morning, as we get started, would you pray with me one more time? Jesus, we thank you so much that you are here with us this morning. We know that we don't have to ask you to be here, God, because we know that you are here with us. And so we pray that in all that we have done so far and all that we will do for the remainder of this service, God, that you would be glorified and honored. Father, in all our utterances of praise and expressions of worship, we pray that um, as we um, dive into your word, that we would be faithful in understanding it and communicating it. Uh, Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. And God, we ask all these things only in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I wonder <clears throat> what it says about us that when we dream, some of the worst dreams that we have are dreams that expose us for who we really are and leave us feeling that we are not in control. You know, there are the, the funny bad dreams, the dreams where you realize at some point that you left the house without a piece of clothing, um, or all of a sudden you're back at school and you walk into class and you realize that the term paper is due that day, or the final is that day and you haven't written or studied for anything at all. Or you're on a stage, much like this one, in front of all these people, and you, you freeze, and you forget what to say. Maybe worse, you, you're in a place, and you realize that you're lost and alone. The, the, the boat has gone, the, the plane has flew off, and you realize that you're lost, and there's no way back, and you, you panic. Or you're, you're running from something. You know, those dreams where you're just, you're just your legs won't work. And you don't know why, but you can't run as fast as you need to. And, and all of it, whether it's a feeling of embarrassment, of lostness, or even of danger, leaves us feeling the thing that we dread the most. And that is being exposed. Oftentimes being forced to, to take off a mask we wear that allows us to pretend that we're something that we're not. And today I've entitled our message, Hard Truth, Removing the Mask That We Wear. And my idea this morning is that, is that sometimes we wear masks that hide the depth of the sin that lives inside of us. And these masks often help us to, to soften our sin or make it seem less bad than it really is. And as I was thinking this week about this, this idea, this concept of mask, one of the, the first things that my mind immediately went to was a song from, of all things, and probably a number of you are going to make fun of me for this, but of all things, the, the play Phantom of the Opera. It's a song called Masquerade. Listen to these words. Masquerade. Paper faces on parade. Masquerade, hide your face so the world will never find you. And that's what masks do, right? They, they hide what's underneath. 
And this morning, I want us to look at three very specific masks that we often wear that can hide the truth of our passage today from Romans chapter 2. Now, just as a quick review, last week we talked about the, the wrath of God, the anger against God, or of God against sin in Romans chapter 1. And in the second half of that uh, chapter 1 of Romans, Paul is, is talking specifically to the pagan. The one who not only doesn't acknowledge God, but lives in immoral disobedience towards God. But then Paul turns to the second chapter of his letter. And instead of continuing to, to preach to the choir, as it were, about them out there, instead of throwing more red meat to his readers, he turns his attention to those very readers who are likely cheering him on through chapter 1 as they're reading this letter about those people. Because the audience of chapter 1 isn't the audience of chapter 2. And this would have been like a shocking surprise, most likely, to that audience of chapter 2. And it's my contention this morning that as difficult as the judgment of God can be in chapter 1, especially when it comes to sexuality, and let's just call that for what it is, it's a really hard chapter. Chapter 2 should be just as difficult for us, the church. Because it's not them out there that he's talking about. It's about us in here. Paul is not placing a harsher judgment on the audience of chapter 1 over chapter 2. In fact, I would say that Paul, in a sense, is arguing that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, without question, Paul is saying that all have fallen short of the glory of God. But in this chapter, he is saying this idea that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 2 teaches that we, the church, are not exempt from God's wrath. Our, our pedigree, our, our birthright, or some other identity doesn't give our sin a pass. Our, our niceness, our abilities, our sensibilities don't make our sin any less unacceptable. Because there certainly isn't a group of believers that can stand in judgment of others' sin without first humbly considering their own. Chapter 1 is uncomfortable in its wrath against sin and people. But so is chapter 2. Because God's wrath against sin is equitable. Meaning, we don't get passes, church. Because we don't do that, or we're not them. The truth of the matter is, in some ways, it's actually just the opposite. Because our knowledge of the truth, the believer's knowledge of the truth, makes our sin all the more unbearable to God. Fundamentally, the issue of our separation from God is our sin. We cannot forget that. We have separated ourselves from God by the things that we have done. And our separation isn't just the way the story goes. It isn't just a, a plot point in the story. 
We have done this. We have egregiously sinned against God. And it just isn't the big sins that separate us from God. It's the smaller ones too. The seemingly smaller ones. It's the attitude of the heart that lead us to think that we're not like those people. Or our level of of stored wrath isn't nearly as much to those in whom we look down on. You see, that contemptuousness towards others is our condemnation. So, that was a super long introduction. (laughs) So after that long introduction, um, let's read today in chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through verse 16. Uh, Today, I'm going to be reading in the NIV. So let's pick it up again at verse 1 in chapter 2. You, therefore... Have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those, by who, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, They are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secret thoughts through Christ Jesus as my gospel declares. So just to kind of reiterate and right here at the top, break down these verses a little bit. Again, Paul is talking to both the Jew and the Gentile believers about their their propensity, their habit to pass judgment on pagans while at the same time doing these things themselves. He explains in verses 1 through 3 that in passing judgment on others, they are ultimately passing judgment on themselves. 
Because the very sins they are pointing out in others show the, the blatant hypocrisy in themselves. He goes on then in verse 4 to tell them that when they do this, they're abusing God's kindness. And in verse 5, he explains to them that because of their uh, simple unwillingness to see their own sin, and because of their abuse of his kindness, they are setting themselves up for a world of hurt which God will give to them. And in verses 6 through 10, Paul begins to lay out the relationship between what we do, our works, the choices we make, and God's treatment of us based on those things. Now we're going to hit pause here for a minute. And we're going we're gonna to get deep just for a couple minutes because this is really important. So hang with me, all right? Now, if you are following along with Paul here in verses 6 through 10, you might get the idea that, that Paul is somehow saying that we are, we're actually saved by the good things that we do. We're saved by our, our works. But Paul is not saying that. Because we know that in the next chapter, he's going to say that we are saved apart from the law. In the chapter previous to this, he also alluded to this same idea. So when you read a, a verse like uh, verse 6, where it says, God will repay each person according to what they have done, we have to dig a little bit deeper to understand what it is exactly that Paul is saying. And with this verse, verse 6 specifically, Paul is reaching back to the Old Testament book of Psalm in Psalm 62. And unfortunately, we don't have the time this morning to dive fully into Psalm 62. But in the context of this psalm, David, the, the psalm writer, the king, is um, contrasting two different groups of people. One group is rebelling against God's chosen authority, the king. And another group of people are submitting themselves to God's chosen authority. And they are, in essence, the second group, finding their hope and salvation in God alone. So, the works that Paul is talking about in verse 6, which is represented by that phrase, what you have done, most likely is the work of trusting in God alone for your salvation. It's this first and most important work. And this is, this is key to understanding and unlocking um, so much of these verses. Now, Paul is also not discounting good works, right? We know he can't be because he's talking all about them. We see in verses 7 through 10 and then again in 12 through 13, Paul keeps talking about these works. And what he's saying here is that those good works that we do, are an inseparable consequence, a good consequence, of the first work of salvation in our lives. And, and this, again, this understanding is also key to unlocking not only the rest of our verses this morning, but so much of the gospel. And so, in layman's terms, let me just say it this way. When we find salvation in Jesus, the proof of that salvation are the good and godly things we do. 
As followers of Jesus, we do good works not so that we will be saved by our good works, but because we have already been saved. And instead, our good works come out of a, an overflow, a grateful response to this immeasurable, amazing gift that Jesus has given us in our rescue. How could we not but respond? When we talk about the compelling nature of Jesus and how we could not respond, it's this idea. How could we not but do based on what Jesus has done for us? Now, the issue that I want to spend the rest of our time talking about this morning is this issue of how we can deceive ourselves into thinking that our sin isn't as bad as others. And, and this idea is important, and it is connected to everything we've talked about this morning, because if we don't understand the depth of not sin, but our sin, if we don't see how greatly and egregiously we have separated ourselves from God, we cannot understand the depth of Jesus rescuing love for us. It's this idea of the mask that these earlier Christians wore and the mask, I believe, that we still wear today. Because the faults of the, the Roman church are very likely our same faults as well. Many of the masks they wore to blunt the blow of their sin are the same mask that we wear today. So let's consider our first mask, the mask of identity. The religious Jews found overwhelming identity in their heritage as a Jew. And often it was this very heritage that caused them to see others as as less than or unworthy of God's mercy. In fact, the issue of, of Jewish identity was an almost continual source of conflict, in this case, between Christ-following Jews and Gentiles. The, the national heritage, the, the Old Testament uh, traditions and moral codes were really hard for the, the converted Jews to let go of. And this caused all kinds of tension, and you see it you see Paul addressing part of it here in chapter 2. But for us, the idea of identifying with a heritage or a nation or, or both is very real to us today. As followers of Jesus, we live in an amazing country that affords us incredible freedoms that have been bought and paid for with blood and one of the most blessed of those rights we could ever be given is that we can freely worship God our creator, Jesus our rescuer, the Holy Spirit our helper. We can do this without legitimate fear of persecution. And over many decades, our nation has reflected so many of the moral codes that are similar and sometimes even more to the morality of the Bible. But just as the danger was for the early church to make their heritage a part of their worship, so the danger has always been for us as Jesus followers in America that we would do the same thing. And while we believe, while I believe, and I and we are deeply thankful for the incredible blessings that God has given this great experiment of democracy called America, Church, we also understand that as followers of Jesus, 
we have a higher citizenship. I'll never forget, lots and lots of years ago, I sat in the chairs you're sitting in, and our founding pastor of this church stood on the stage. And he was preaching a sermon about citizenship, and he used this illustration that has always stuck with me. He was, um, would often find himself flying to different countries, and he would talk about how when you almost get to the country, they, they pass out a, um, a, a declaration form that you fill out and you give to the customs agent at wherever um, country you're going to so they could formally let you into uh, the country. And on that form, on that little form, there's usually a question that says simply, where is your citizenship? Just asking, where do you formally reside? And he said that, that as, he, as he read that question, he would always, it would always give him pause. He would always think about that question and ponder, where is my citizenship? And of course, he would always put America because that's where his formal citizenship was from. But again, it would always make him stop and think. Because we understand. He understood that, that while our citizenship is here in this country, it is only a temporary citizenship. And his true country and our true country, his true loyalty, lie not in America, but in heaven as a child of the king. And we would do well to remember, especially now in the times we live in, that as followers of Jesus, we put our hope neither in the ideals and heritage of a nation like ours, nor in the government of a nation like ours, but in Jesus alone and in the hope of our adoption into his family. Because we find salvation neither in conservative tradition nor in progressive structures. We find it in the grace and the rescue alone of Jesus. Now, we could talk a whole lot more about this issue of identity, and we really don't have time. But suffice it to say, if our primary identity is not found in Jesus, instead of in our profession, our gender, our morality, our causes, or a hundred other identities, we will find ourselves out of step with God. The second mask I want us to think about this morning is called the mask of contempt. The idea of contempt is at the heart, really, of every judgmental glance and decision. Contempt is this idea of looking down on someone in just fundamental judgment of them. It is altogether kind of this act of disgust. And so to look down with contempt on a person is telling. But back in verse 4, Paul is accusing the Roman church of what? Contempt. Contempt toward the riches of God's kindness when he says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? This is one of the most important verses in this chapter. God's kindness and mercy shouldn't be the thing that move us towards sin, but away from it. Because how can we take advantage of his kindness when we truly understand the depth of it? 
Doing anything else would be showing, as Paul said, contempt for the sheer magnitude and richness of his kindness. And remember how we have defined contempt. It's disgust. It's a, it's a judgmental looking down on. And as I think about this, I immediately am reminded of the parable of the ungrateful servant that Jesus told in Matthew 18. And if you, if you know the parable, you know that after being forgiven of this incredibly enormous debt, the, the servant, the debtor, goes and he finds another person who owes him just a very small amount of money. And he violently shakes him down for the money. And as we think about this story, we just kind of don't understand it because it doesn't square with the spirit of what had happened to the debtor. He had been forgiven of this enormous debt. How could that not then change his behavior towards others if he truly understood the enormous gift that he had been given? You see where I'm going with this? His behavior, whether you believe the Bible or not, is universally incomprehensible to us. How could he understand the magnitude of the gift and then treat it like that? And so for us to treat God's kindness with contempt by presuming we don't need it nearly as much as another does is an offense to God. But in practice for us, how does this look? Well, let me give you an example that I've been thinking about. What about our views of certain people outside of our, let's say, socioeconomic bracket? We go to certain stores and we perceive it to be full of a certain kind of people that subconsciously we kind of presume to be on a different level of us. And socioeconomic brackets and classes of people exist in reality. We're not here this morning to argue that. But what we are here to say this morning is that our attitudes towards other people that are different than we are can sometimes fill our minds with disgust towards them. And friends, I'm fairly confident that there is nothing more offensive to God than this than looking down upon someone in disgust just simply so that you can soften the reality of your own bankruptcy. This mask of disgust has led to some of the most heinous sins in our world and in our nation. When we don't see the image of God in other people, when we don't understand that each person has intrinsic worth because they are made in the image of God, it leads us subtly down the path of seeing people that are different from us as less than. You want an exercise that's going to convict your heart, and I know it because I've done it myself, and force you to change the way you see people. Go to a place or a store you don't normally go to. And when you're there, look at each face you pass. And say to yourself, this person is loved by God. This person has been made in the image of God. And see if that doesn't break your heart. See if that doesn't change the way you perceive not just other people, but even yourself. The last mask I want us to look at this morning is the mask of good. Kind of an odd one, right? 
How can being good lead us to cover over the extent of our, of our sin? Well, verses 14 and 15 explain that the requirements of the law are actually written on our heart. So in one sense, it's almost, it's almost natural for us to do at least some good. In another sense, doing good for the sake of doing good not only doesn't make our sin any less unacceptable, it's also built into us, again, to do some good works. So actually, it's, it's fairly easy to see how this mask of good can make us think that we can blunt our own sin. I think this idea is so exemplified in another parable that Jesus told, the parable of the prodigal son. And if you know this story, Jesus tells of a, of a younger brother who decides to leave home and go out on his own. And as he leaves, he asks his father for his, his share of the inheritance. He takes it and he leaves. And the way the story goes, of course, he completely blew it. He's living in sin and squandered all of his money until one day he decided that the only really hope he has after everything else was gone was to go home, beg for forgiveness, and just hope that at the very best that his, that his father would give him a job. And so he did this. And there's this beautiful picture of a reunion of his father as he sees his son coming from a long way off. The father runs to his son, bracing him and welcoming him back into his family. It's this incredibly beautiful picture of grace and redemption. But the story actually really isn't about the younger brother at all. The story is actually about the older brother. You see, there was this other brother who made all the opposite decisions of his ambitious younger sibling. When he left home, the older brother stayed. When he abandoned his father and his work, the older brother stayed. Instead of squandering all his money, the older brother saved it and spent it wisely. But he did it all under the auspices of being good. When in reality, his sin was right there the whole time. It's just simply hidden by the mask of good. But of course, it reared its ugly head when the father welcomed his younger son back. The older brother heard of this and he came to his father. He was incensed and angry that his father would do such a generous thing, welcoming him back to his family, making him part again of that family. But all the while, the older brother completely missed the miracle of his lost brother who had come home. He came home. And he'd been welcomed back by this incredibly loving and gracious Father. Do we wear the mask of good? Do you assume that your goodness makes your sinfulness somehow less impactful? Do you truly understand the depth of your sinfulness and your separation before God? Whether your sins are out loud or subtle, whether they are obvious or hidden, you stand condemned, I stand condemned before the maker of the universe without any ability in yourself or myself to make any difference at all. So where does that leave us? 
What is our hope? Where do we find identity? How do we love enough to not look on people with contempt? How do we be good out of response and not an obligation for us to earn something? Church, Jesus has always has all the answers. Not only does he offer us rescue from this invasive root of sin that lives inside of us, but he gives us a worldview. He gives us a different understanding of how we should live and what we should do in this world. Jesus offers us so much more than the false comfort of a mask to hide behind. Church, this morning, we're going to have a small time of reflection. We're going to sit in quiet and examine what it is that we have heard today. And I would encourage each and every one of us to think not of sin in the world or sin out there, but sin right here. What have we done? How have we separated ourselves from God? And how, in this beautiful contrast, has Jesus came to offer us his rescue? Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much that you, even in our sin, have seen us. God, I think of the picture of that younger brother who one day came to himself and realized the bankruptcy of his situation. And the only thing he could do was just simply fall on the hope that his father maybe would welcome him home. Father, may we understand the depth of our brokenness and our bankruptcy in this way. God, may it ruin us. May it help us to see the incredible vast gulf between who we are and who you are. Also that we can understand the unbelievable world-shaking contrast of Jesus and his rescue, his offer of rescue to us. We love you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Pastor Gary just said, we're going to actually not just think about these things or hear about these things. We're going to put some of this into practice this morning. And so before we actually come to the communion table, as we've heard directly from God through his word, we're actually going to spend some time just in silent reflection. And I'm going to give us some prompts, some guides along the way, ways that we have fallen short, ways that we maybe even haven't acknowledged before we've come into this place together. So there's going to be a time where we're going to be individually uh, reflecting before the Lord, and then we're going to do so as a body together, and we're going to read Psalm 130 in a responsive fashion. But as you've heard scripture this morning, I would invite you just to take a posture of prayer. Uh, Close your eyes if you want to. Um, Certainly whatever position you want to take before the Lord in submission. And I'm just going to say these things and we'll give some pauses for you to contemplate in what ways have I misidentified myself or cast judgment or seen myself as better than I am. And so I'll read this for us and we'll take some pauses and then we'll continue on. So we pray this, Lord, forgive us for the ways we have misidentified ourselves. Forgive us for confusing our identity as belonging to a certain political party 
or a certain leader or a certain church or a certain belief structure. Forgive us for forgetting our identity is first and foremost as beloved children of God. And now we address contempt. Lord, forgive us for holding others in contempt who have not lived to the imaginary standards we have set up for them. Forgive us for so quickly judging others. For believing that we ourselves are not guilty. for holding others to standards that we ourselves often fall short of. Forgive us for forgetting your standard of holiness in Christ. And forgive us for failing to love first in all things. And finally, a reflection on good. Lord, forgive us for imagining that we are somehow the judge of what's good and bad. Forgive us for believing that we can do good apart from you. For the complicity we've had in furthering broken systems. and for believing we are not responsible for the evil that besets our community. Amen. We're going to say together now from Romans, sorry, from Psalm 130, and it's this call of confession that this writer writes out and he says, this is what I want the nation of Israel and now us, the church, to confess before the Lord. And so we'll read this in response to this time of confession. Out of the depths we cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear our voices. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of our pleas for mercy. But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. We wait for the Lord, our souls wait. And in this worldly hope, our souls wait for the Lord. More than those who watch for the morning. More than those who watch for the morning. O church, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem his church from all its iniquities. And the reason we know this church is because of what we're going to celebrate now. We're going to receive communion together. This is the symbol and seal of our forgiveness in Christ.